Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for your presence with us in this place, in this study, in this time. Thank you, Father, that we're learning about things so long ago. It's so easy, Father, to forget about all that you've done and think only about what isn't the way we want. In the days we live, Father, so much turmoil, so much uncertainty, so much strife. And Father, it is so nice to rest in your word, to be in peace, knowing you are the author of all things, the creator of all things, that your plan has been unfolding since the beginning of time, and it will, it will continue, Father, uninterrupted. All that we know and all that we experience in our day, Father, is just a dot on a line of things that you are working. We know that. It's easy to forget that, Father. Thank you for a chance to see David uh, as he does what he does in his life, working with you and on occasion, Father, working outside your counsel. And know, Father, that if David could be in your care through so much of his life, both in turmoil and in rest, that we can know that the same is true for us. And we thank you for that. Help us to see more today, Father, as we continue our study. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week we got into a new section, so we're going to keep moving into that new section of 2 Samuel. This is the section in which the writer starts to chronicle David's failings as a king. And this new section is long. It runs from chapter 9 last week all the way to chapter 20, uh, and that is considerably longer than the first section that was his successes. But that's not because David's failures... Uh, were more common, more often than his successes, nor were they necessarily more prominent than his successes. No, it's because a deeper examination of his failures is just a lot more instructive for us spiritually. His successes, they remind you of the Lord's faithfulness because it was the Lord doing it. And that's important. But Relatively speaking, it's much more important that we study David's failures as an opportunity to learn from his mistakes so that we can improve our own faithfulness to God. Because God's faithfulness, never in doubt. But our faithfulness is the question often. So this is a section in which we get to learn, a character study, if you will, to learn how one of the, the best, if you will, a man who's known as a man after God's own heart, how he fell and then what comes from that. Last week, as we began this new section uh, in chapter 9, it was David extending grace to Mephibosheth, remember? Jonathan's son, a heartwarming picture of God's grace to us. And just to remind you of kind of how that was applied at the end last week, Mephibosheth, remember he was the boy crippled by a fall. Likewise, we are crippled spiritually by the fall in the garden. And just as Mephibosheth could not stand in David's presence, as we were reminded at the end of chapter 9, he was lame. Uh, Similarly, we can't stand in the presence of God by our own efforts either. So when David showed Mephibosheth grace, he did so because of a covenant he made with Jonathan. And that's a picture of God showing us grace uh, because of a covenant in Christ. And when David looked at Mephibosheth, he saw not that lame boy, but he saw his friend, Jonathan. And when the father looks at us, he sees Jesus by faith. So God shows us mercy because of a covenant made in Christ's blood, and we receive that mercy because God has granted it to us, just as David granted his grace to Mephibosheth. So we looked at all that last week. If you weren't here for that chapter, it's a beautiful chapter of scripture. Certainly encourage you to go back to that. And That chapter, you remember, starts this section of David's failures, and that's always a bit of a conundrum for folks because it's hard to understand how that chapter of all chapters could be seen as failure. And it was not a failure that David sought out that man or that he sought out the opportunity to show grace and and faithfulness to the covenant that he had with David. That's not the problem. The problem was how David was using this man. As we'll see later in the book, David was using Mephibosheth to appease the Benjamites. He gave his... Uh, grandfather's inheritance, uh, Mephibosheth's grandfather's inheritance to Mephibosheth, Saul's inheritance. And that means that Mephibosheth became a prominent man in the tribe of Benjamin. And that set the stage for future conflict. So we'll come back to that. But that's why that chapter is in this section. David was mixing his desire to keep his word to Jonathan with a personal desire to be popular and accepted by his enemies so that he doesn't have to deal with them. Later, a man from Mephibosheth's household, a man named Sheba, will rebel against 
David's dynasty. And that rebellion is made possible in part because of David's desire to placate the Benjamites through Mephibosheth. So, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing when you start down a path where you think you're doing the right thing, but you're doing it for the wrong motives. It tends to work itself out in unexpected ways. All right, well, that leads us now into the next chapter in this long section. And this next chapter begins a little three-chapter subset, if you will, in this second section. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all about David and Bathsheba. And it centers not so much on them, although certainly they're the heart of it, but it centers on David's defeating of the Ammonites. That's the backdrop. You know, if you ever read those wartime romance novels, you know, they're set in some historical uh, perspective in the Civil War or in World War I or whatever. Uh, it's not really about the war, though. It's about what's going on in the lives of some characters, but the war is always in the background. It sets the scene. Well, the war against the Ammonites are, is that sort of scene-setting context for what goes on with David and Bathsheba. And it's the story, of course, if you didn't already know, of David's fall into adultery. I I think, dare say, everybody's heard of Bathsheba and David, but it's not so true that everyone knows what it's about. We're going to find that out, obviously, as we go through the study. Back in chapter 8, we heard a summary of David's successes on the battlefield, remember? That was the last chapter of that first section of success. And it was that summary of how he beat all the neighbors that were all around Israel. Uh, And in that discussion, there's a brief moment in which David's victory over the Ammonites was mentioned. But it's only in passing. If you want to look back there for a second, it's 2 Samuel 8, verses 11 and 12. And we just read this back then. King David also dedicated these, meaning the, the spoils of war, to the Lord, with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Aram and Moab, and the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines and Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So in that summary of what he did with the spoils of war, we just hear in passing that some of the spoils came from the sons of Ammon. Well, that would be our only clue in that chapter to know that one of the victories he won was over Ammonites. Well, now you're hearing how he did it. So this chapter goes back in time. Remember, we've seen this constantly now. This writer is not interested in trying to provide a chronology here. He's moving around wherever he needs to to make points. He's now talking about failures. That means he's going to move around to wherever they happened. And this particular failure comes fairly early in David's reign, maybe in the first 10 years of his 40. Some have estimated he was around 49 when this happened. And It explains the circumstances of how he defeated the Ammonites, and of course, in that context, we also learn about his greatest personal failure. So we start there, 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. Now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent counselors to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. There are several details in this chapter that would confirm for us this happened relatively early, but going back in time again. First, we hear that the king of Ammon, who's King Nahash, he's just died. Well, we know from 1 Samuel that Nahash was the king that was in power when Saul came into power back in 1 Samuel. Well, Saul ruled for 40 years. So you read about this in 1 Samuel 11. There's actually a conflict back at that point between Saul and and King Nahash. King Nahash tries to take Gabesh Gilead from Saul. Saul responds with the Lord's anointing in a stunning victory over the Ammonites at that point, and that actually leads to Saul being anointed king as a result. All right, that's the same guy that we now hear has just died, and this is a few years into David's reign, so this guy's been on the throne 40 to 50 years, which is an incredibly long period of time for anyone to reign, and so you wouldn't think he could have lasted much longer than that, So it's likely that this is happening early in David's reign. And it says here his son, Nahash's son, Hanun, is ready to assume power in his father's place. And at first, he is willing to receive David's messengers as a sign of peace. David had made peace with his father at an earlier point. 
And so Nahash, and now his son Hanun, is assuming, well, we'll just continue this. But then his counselors make a different argument. And so they argue for him to treat David as a spy, his messengers as spies, and send David's spies away. And uh, that gives us the second reason to think this is early in David's reign, because by David's, the end of David's reign, he's beaten everybody. There's nobody more powerful than David. No one would dare challenge David. The thought that these guys think they can beat David is evidence that they think early in his reign, they're going to test his power. They're going to test his ability. So David sends these men as a representative piece. They get sent back, half their beards shaved, clothes ripped off, and so on. This is an attempt by the new king to be spiteful over David's overture and embarrass and humiliate his messengers. Jews did not shave their beards, or their heads for that matter, because the law prohibited such. And the Ammonite king probably knew this, so he has their beards disfigured, half of them shaved, and so on knowing that it will send these men back in a state of humiliation, and he almost makes them naked. The the sense here is that they barely had any clothes on when he's done, which is itself an uh, an embarrassment. So clearly he's sending a message to David here. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not interested in peace. And in time, men like Hanun learn not to challenge David, but uh, right now that lesson needs to be experienced, and it hasn't happened yet. So these men go back, verse 5. When they told it to David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho until your beards grow, and then return. Now when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, the sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans of Beth-Rohab and the Arameans of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Machah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. So... uh, First, David deals sensitively with his men as they come back. He, he realizes this is going to be difficult for them. So he sends them to Jericho. Now, Jericho had never been rebuilt since the time of Joshua. So it's the perfect hiding place for these men. It's virtually abandoned. Meanwhile, the word gets back to Ammon that David's not happy with them. It says here that they are odious. That's kind of a unique Hebrew way of saying they stunk. But the point is that David is not pleased, to say the least, And, you you know, what were they thinking? Obviously, what they did was a provocation. It was intended to provoke David. And so the Ammonites uh, prepare for war. They they know they're going to see David come back against them. David cannot turn a blind eye to this kind of provocation, because if he had, it would have been an invitation for them to make an invasion onto Israel. So the Ammonites prepare by seeking help from allies, Arameans, Zobah, Tob, and others. These, if you remember, are some of the men we heard about, some of the nations we heard about when we studied that earlier chapter of David, you know, kicking rear ends and taking names around all the countries that were all around him. These are the guys that ended up being defeated, and it's their willingness to align with the Ammonites that gave opportunity for David to begin beating all of them. The king's actions being a provocation, David uh, announces his forces are going to go to battle. Look at verse 7. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men, the sons of Ammon, came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Machah were by themselves in the field. Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans. But the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. He said... If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. Be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So David's commander Joab, and it says all the army, so David's put all his chips on the table here, they're sent to fight the Ammonites. Uh, Notice, though, as you see this beginning, you don't see David consulting before the Lord like he used to do before he went into battle, asking the Lord, should I go up? Should I go left? Should I go right? That is a bad sign, and it's a bit of an omen of where we're going. So often, and I think this is the case with all of us at some stage in our life, when we're new in our walk with Christ, uh, when he's raising us up, we're in some new endeavor, it's not uncommon for us to feel our own weakness and uncertainty, so then we go to the Lord asking for help, lots of counsel, lots of prayer, lots of checking in, whether that's through one means or another, We feel that trepidation and we look to the Lord to to give us confidence, right? But as you mature, 
either in your walk in general or maybe in your understanding of a particular ministry opportunity as you get good at it, as we might say, then, and then your battles lessen and it becomes routine, then you tend to ease off on that dependency and what often happens is your, your reliance on God tends to drop off. So the disciplines of the faith that you previously relied on, those drop off. And the irony here is just as you're getting more mature and those things should be increasing in your walk because of maturity, you actually tend to back off thinking you've got this. You know, God, I got it from here. Thank you very much for bringing me this far. David is sort of acting in that way here. When he was under pressure and trying to consolidate power and under threat in the desert, you know, hiding from Saul, he was in prayer all the time. That's why we have the Psalms. And it it would appear as though, now he didn't stop writing them. There's still Psalms written for later in his life too. But the point is, it seems as though at this stage of his life, he's feeling the wind at his back and he takes decisions on his own without any consultation with the Lord and it's gonna get him into trouble. And, And that's what the next you know, 10 chapters or so, is all about. So David commits his entire army to this battle, and they meet at their first engagement at a place called Medeba. And we know that from First Chronicles 19, which tells us that. So we're gonna look at a little map here. This is uh, not a big part of tonight. I just wanted to give you something to look at as you start to hear about these places. So the first encounter, you see where Ammon is, obviously. Aram, which is north, is the Arameans that we talked about. David is in, uh, coming out of Jerusalem. The first encounter was led by Joab and his brother Abishai, and so they come across the Transjordan, it's called Jordan River Valley, and they head toward a place called Medeba, and it's just outside the land of Ammon, the the territory that Ammon controlled. And the Arameans who have agreed to fight with Ammon have joined the battle, and so they sweep in from the north, uh, and the Ammonites from their place of, uh, of, of territory, they come in and circle from behind on the other side. That's why you hear Joab and Abishai talking about facing two different fronts in this battle simultaneously, which forces them to divide their forces, which is never an easy, a great thing in battle because it obviously lessens your strength. Uh, Joab takes half or so, he gives the rest to his brother, and Abishai is going to take the uh, Ammonite front Joab is going to take the Aramean front in the north, and then they agree whoever falters gets the help of the other. But of course, what they leave unspoken is what if we're both faltering? But it shows you at least their, their confidence that the Lord is going to lead them into this battle successfully. They just don't know exactly how it's going to happen, and they need to be on their toes in case they have to move their forces to one or the other battle. And he ends with that commendable encouragement. He says, know the Lord is in control. Uh, you, you cannot go wrong with that encouragement under any set of circumstances. I don't care how bad your life is. I don't care how bad the situation is. I don't care what you're facing. It's there because God let it, let it happen. That means he's in control. Let it go. Let it be. Let, let God work through it. Experience it. Deal with it. Make the best of it. Yes, but don't imagine that your life is falling apart. God is directing your life. Sometimes when someone else has the wheel, it feels like the car is out of control because your hands aren't on it aren't on the wheel? Well, when the Lord's in control, as he always is, some days the car's careening around, but it's no less in control. He's just taking you somewhere. All right, that's what Joab just expressed in so many words. All right, back to the text for a second, verse 13. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. Not much of a battle, is it? It's not really even described. It's just evidence enough that the Lord brought a victory here because as they go to engage on these two fronts against what we presume are greater forces, they all just flee. It's almost as if the sight of Israel entering into battle was enough for these men to say, oh, you know what, bad idea, we're out of here. So after seeing all these adversaries run off so easily, Joab makes a mistake He declines to chase them. Instead, he returns to Jerusalem, which means the battle isn't over. So back to we're going to back out of here a little bit because what we heard there and what we'll read next about the fleeing of these uh, troops shows how the the span here increases dramatically. So we have Joab going back to Jerusalem. That's the little blue arrow again. But verse 15, it says, When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together, and Hadadazar sent and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river, and they came to Helam. 
And Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, led them. Remember the name, Hadadezer? Back from chapter eight again. King of Zobah, one of those enemies that tried to come against David. He aligned with the Aramaeans, thinking they could ally together and defeat David. David defeats them, according to chapter eight, and then they become vassals of Israel. They pay tribute to Israel. Well, now you're hearing the details of how that came to pass. And you learned in that passage that the Aramaeans, when they retreated, they didn't just run a little way, they just kept running. They went to a stronghold called, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Ammonites go to a stronghold called Rabbah. So the Ammonites go directly back into a city. You heard it earlier where it says that they fled into the city. The city's not named here, but it is named in First Chronicles. So it's Rabbah. Rabbah is the, the stronghold of the Ammonites. But the Aramaeans are the ones that run a a long distance. In verse 15, we heard they ran, it says, or in verse 16, beyond the river. That's the river Euphrates. When you hear of the city in the Bible, it's always Jerusalem, with a couple of exceptions. When you hear of the river, it's always the Euphrates River. And that means they went this far. So they really booked it out of town. They ended up in a place that is roughly where Hazar, Zobah, you see it up there, where, the, uh, where Hadadezer was. That's why Hadadezer gets involved at this point. He sees the retreat of the Arameans, hears the story of what's going on, and says, you know what, if I bring my forces in with yours and my commander leads you, we can beat them. So this forms this alliance. The conflict is widening now and it's sucking in more of Israel's enemies into the battle. Verse 17. Now when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Aramaeans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. But the Aramaeans fled before Israel and David killed 700 charioteers of the Aramaeans and 40,000 horsemen and struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the king's servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. And so the Aramaeans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. Now this is the background on what we studied in chapter eight. So David sees that Joab comes back with the job unfinished. I imagine they maybe have had some words. And he hears that the Ammonites have gone back into their stronghold and what's worse, the Arameans are regrouping with a new ally getting ready to start new trouble. So David takes matters into his own hands. He takes control of the army from Joab. He goes out heading north he puts down the Aramaeans and Hadadezer's army, of course, with the Lord's help, and he destroys Shobach. He destroys their ability to wage war, stuff we've seen before. Now the king of Zobah has no choice but to become a vassal. That's what we studied. Now, the Ammonites are by themselves at this point. They've lost that powerful grouping of allies from the north. They have their city. They're in a walled city. They're in a stronghold, but they don't have a lot of options at this point except to hold up. But... David now is not content with leaving any enemies unvanquished. He's going to finish the job that Joab didn't finish. So having shown his commander how to vanquish an enemy, in the case of the Arameans, David goes back to Jerusalem now, and he allows his commander to take charge again. That's where we are now in chapter 11, verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now, that verse, as it opens in chapter 11, it has a measure of foreshadowing. And the foreshadowing is in this suggestion that David was wrong to stay in Jerusalem. And and you get that sense, right? It's actually very prominent there at the end. But David stayed. We see how his presence affected the success of the army when when he went out to the Aramaeans. And when he commands his army, his wisdom leads the people The Lord blesses the outcome, and when David sits back, when he allows others like Joab or Abishai to fight these battles, the results are less impressive. The sense you're getting is that the Lord intended David to lead, which is why the Lord anointed him, which is why the Lord gave him the role of king. He was not a figurehead. He was not an administrator behind a desk. He was a hands-on leader. He was meant to be an example for the people. And when David steps out of that role, bad things happen. And the sense you're getting from this opening verse 
is that what will follow now in the next series of chapters is a direct result, or at least it was made possible, by the fact that David stayed home idle instead of on the battlefield where he was needed as God had appointed. And it reminds us something that that I think is easy to forget in our career-minded culture. God raises up leaders for very specific spiritual purposes, and those purposes cannot be delegated to anyone. A man or a woman who is raised up and gifted to lead, for example, if that's their gifting, cannot delegate leadership to others. No more than a prophet or a teacher can delegate the giving of prophecy or the giving of teaching to somebody else. Now, obviously, a leader can delegate the performance of tasks, yes. That's just part of being a good leader. That's different, though, than delegating the responsibility of leadership. The essence of a person's call from God cannot be delegated, period. The essence of your calling cannot be delegated. Um, Using men, for example, a man who has the gift to lead or pastor must remain in a position to oversee all leadership and all pastoring duties respectively because that's why they were raised up. Or a woman with a gift to teach or a woman with a gift to encourage others cannot step back from teaching to manage a staff of teachers. That is abdicating your spiritual calling. Let someone with the gift to lead manage while those who have the gift to teach keep teaching. Those who have the gift of prophetic gifts keep doing that. There there is no principle in scripture that says you graduate up from your gift to some higher level of management of gifts. Remember what the apostles said when someone suggested they should move up to a management position? In Acts chapter six, the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples together and said it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, we often interpret that as if it meant move down from their position of authority to lesser jobs. That's not the suggestion. The suggestion is there is a need to manage this issue within the church. We, you, know, you see us as your teachers and as apostles, as men of authority, and therefore you assume that we should manage everything that comes along. And they reject that notion. They said it's not desirable for us to do things other than to teach and pray. So who is it that wouldn't desire it? Why is it not desirable? Who's not desiring it? Isn't it the one who gave them the gift? That is God? And if they had moved to other duties, wouldn't they have been, as they said, neglecting what God gave them to do? Look, if you delegate your, I'm talking now in terms of spiritual gifting. If you delegate that to somebody else, you're neglecting your gift. You're abdicating your responsibility to serve God in a specific calling. And those that God intends to serve us receive what they have to make that available to us. If they neglect it, we get less of what God intended. David delegated his God-given role as the leader of Israel in battle. That was part of what God gave him to do. Remember, it's his son who built the temple because it was David who led the battles. And he abdicated that responsibility at times. And when he did... Israel received less than God intended. So I'm on a soapbox, I apologize, but it's an issue I've seen in ministry that's too often overlooked. God does not want us to hand off areas of ministry that have been assigned to us so that someone else can do the job while we climb a success ladder in vocational ministry. It never feels that we're doing that in the moment. It always feels as if we we tell ourselves, well, I have to take on these higher responsibilities so I can do more for the body of Christ. Nonsense. You're not all that. Nobody needs you. God doesn't need you, right? No one's that important. What God wants is individuals who have a heart to serve, and he equips you to do that service, and he calls you with that equipping into service. Do what you've been told to do. Be content with that. Do it till you die. That's what it looks like to serve God. Look at everyone in the Bible who's ever had a calling and an anointing, and look what they did. David did not become you know, some greater world government leader because he graduated from being king of Israel. Moses did not move on into some upper management position later in Israel. He, you know, there is not a principle that says you move up. That's careerism. A man or a woman who's raised up for certain purposes cannot turn over that responsibility to another right? It's not a career move. This isn't a ladder. (laughs) You receive a gift and a calling, and the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, right? So I say that with some passion because I think it's one one of the bigger problems in the church today for how we see weakness 
in churches because someone who's really good at teaching feels they have to move up to being senior executive, master pastor, you know, uh, king, you know, potentate, world ruler. And when they get into those positions, they can wipe their hands of all that dirty teaching stuff and they can just sit behind their desk and, you know, look important. I'm being exaggerating. But it's common, right? How many pastors start teaching and quickly drop off? How many pastors teach a few times a year? I mean, that's not healthy. That's not what the church should expect. You'll never see me do anything else than this. I don't know how to do anything else. I'm bad at everything else. I do this pretty well. That's it. I'll just do this. And so that's, a, that's something that, that individuals have to know, but I think churches need to know that too so that they don't encourage that kind of graduating mindset even among those who serve at any level, not just the senior people. Everyone knows what they're good at. Just do it. Just do that and love it. And do it till you're done. And don't give up. Run the race that was set before you. All right. Soapbox will be retired for the rest of the night. Verse two. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. So the story of David and Bathsheba now, one of the best known probably in the whole of Old Testament. Certainly, this has to be David's weakest moment. What starts as lust becomes adultery and eventually leads to murder. It may be Some have said the second most notorious sin in the Bible after the fall in the garden. It's also a classic example of how sin works in a particular person's heart when it's allowed to mature and progress. Augustine once said that David's fall with Bathsheba was a warning to all who have yet to fall that we should be on guard. And he said it's an encouragement to save from despair all those who have fallen. And I can see it from both sides, right? If David can fall like this, anyone can. And yet if we do, God didn't leave David behind, he won't leave us behind. Now this story spans the next two chapters, 11 and 12. If you were to do a careful study of these two chapters, you find out it's in a chiastic structure. If you're one of these people who likes chiasms like I do, The chapter is a chiasm. I won't go into that tonight. You guys can look that up for yourself if you want. The point of the chiasm, the point where it reverses, is the last verse of chapter 11. So they're neatly divided. Chapter 11 is one half of the chiasm. Chapter 12 is the other half of the chiasm. And some of the examples of how it pairs up. It starts with David sending Joab to Rabbah. It ends with Joab sending David to Rabbah, the opposite. It starts with David sleeping with Bathsheba, Bathsheba getting pregnant, and then her husband dies. It ends with David's son dying, then David sleeps with Bathsheba, and then uh, Bathsheba gets pregnant with Solomon. So there's the chiasm flows really clearly throughout this whole story. Anyway, it reminds us, the fact that there is a chiasm here in this reminds us that these events happened according to a plan of God and ultimately for a good purpose in David's life. But chiasms are, are useful in, in several ways. One of those ways is to understand, look, if the events of life can turn out in such a perfect, symmetrical way, it's not a coincidence. It's not chance. It is obviously God showing us his fingerprints in this story. He's doing something here through these people's lives. And like most stories of a kind of this sort, it starts innocently enough. David taking a nighttime stroll on the roof of his palace. Now roofs in that day and age were part of the living space. You lived on the roof of your home at part of the day, especially in the evening. Those, you know, daytime heat in the middle of the, that part of the world can get pretty high, and so the, the clay stone walls of homes would absorb all that heat during the day, and at night it could get kind of warm inside as all that heat's being given off. So if you needed to cool down, people went up to the roof. Cool night air in the desert, they'd, they'd sit outside. So David apparently on this night, it says, is having trouble sleeping, maybe because it's hot, so he ends up on his roof. Now the palace that was built for David on the upper end of the old, of what we call the city of David, uh, if you look at the geography of where we know that was, it was, a, it was a slope up, sloping hillside that eventually crested at Mount Zion 
and then there was a slight dip again before it crested at Mount Moriah. So he's on the, the sloping side, the upper side of the, of the city is the highest point. That's where his palace was. And the whole thing is not very big. Uh, if you ever get to Israel, you'll see how small this place was. It was really small, a uh, small little area, uh, you know, the size of uh, far smaller than one of our typical neighborhoods today. And he's on the roof, which means he can see most anything in the town from where he is. But certainly things very near him, he could see clearly from that vantage point. He's the highest point in the city. As he looks around, he notices a young woman bathing. Perhaps he sees her through windows. Obviously, there's no glass in that day, so a window is just a hole in the wall, a big square opening. But more likely, she's bathing in the courtyard of her home. Homes typically had a walled court uh, that encompassed the home. So from ground level, you wouldn't have been able to see anything. But from above, he could. And seeing her bathing, he says he's instantly taken by her beauty he asks his servants about this woman he's seeing. They go find out who, he is, who she is. Gives, they give David the name, Bathsheba. That means maiden of an oath. And then having learned her name, he does what a king has the power to do. He sends for her. You know, they've always said more wealth and more power just means more opportunity to sin. And you see it at play here. The average man, even if he had seen her, couldn't have done anything about it. But David can. And... He, in sending for her, of course, she has to respond to a king's request for an audience. And verse 4, very quickly, very simply says that David lay with her, and then after she purifies herself ritually and, and returns home. And just like that, David commits adultery. Now, he's committed adultery already through additional marriages, but that was culturally acceptable in that day. Here, he's taken the step of adultery without even the pretense of marriage, and he's done it with a woman who is also already married. So what do we make of what David and Bathsheba did? For example, is this just David's sin? You know, most would assume that Bathsheba never intended to be seen bathing, and yet, as I just said, Jerusalem's not a very big place. She obviously lived near the palace. She must have known that she was inside of David's roof, that does suggest that she might have been toying with the king here a little bit. I'm not saying she intended to sleep with him. I'm just saying, and I should also add, the text never explicitly blames her for this, and so I don't intend to throw too much of this her way, but there is also no evidence that she ever tried to resist David's advances in the way that Joseph resisted Potiphar's wife. And I know the male-female roles are reversed there, but it doesn't make much difference in this case because Joseph had no more power over Potiphar's wife than Bathsheba has over David, and yet Joseph made it very clear he wasn't going to participate in the act. I think you could argue that she could have done something if that was her interest. It would seem as though she was sort of playing with fire, being a little flirtatious, wondering if maybe she could catch his eye, and then next thing she knows, she's in trouble and doesn't maybe know how to get out of it. But having said all that, David obviously deserves the bulk of the blame. I wouldn't suggest otherwise, not only because he's king, but also because he knows the importance of keeping a covenant. His problems begin here in a way that I think is common for sin in everyone's life, the way sin always starts. It typically starts with the lust of the eyes. Humanity's sin, in fact, the very first one started that way. A woman looked at the fruit and saw that it was good, saw. It was a sight-driven initial interest, and then her lustful sight turned her onto a destructive path, and we know the rest. James describes that path this way, James 1.13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he or she is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has, been, has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So, it's a very important passage for understanding how you end up in places you never intended to go. James says, we're carried away, we're enticed, or you could use the word lured, like fishing. We're enticed or lured or carried away into sin by a lust, a fleshly desire of some kind. And that lust, that fleshly desire is programmed into us from birth. You came into this world lusting. At first it was for uh, food, uh, for comfort, then it became toys, then it became whatever you could see and touch and move. I mean, lust is just built in to the fabric of human nature from this time we came into the world because of sin being in us from the time we were born. We carry 
that with us. And as the flesh sees something that it wants, it puts in you a desire for it, and that desire, James says, can carry you away, carry you away from sanity, carry you away from sensibility, carry you away from reasonable thinking, carry you away from a careful calculation of the consequences, just, just get you moving. And as you're carried away, it's like a magnet, you, you are pulled into something that you never would have consciously said was right to begin with, but as you get closer to it, the magnetic force is stronger, you get pulled harder. That's lustful desire as it grows. And James says, as it conceives, that is as, like a baby growing inside you, as it grows, when it finally gives birth to some sinful act, James says once that act is accomplished, then it brings forth death. Now ultimately, he's talking about the death that we all experience because of sin, right? The, the death of our body and without Christ, the second death of the soul. But it's also an allusion to what I call the small deaths that we die every time we sin. For example, the sin we commit in, in chasing after some lust or another will kill a relationship or kill your fortune or kill your peace or wreck your family and career. I mean, the, the things that die in our life because we are sacrificing them, if you will, at the altar of our lust. And David's case, if you notice, fits the pattern of James perfectly. He sees a naked woman. He's drawn in by his lust. It conceives literally a child. And that leads to two deaths. Now, it's sort of the ultimate example in his case because the words aren't even metaphoric. They're literal. But it's also obviously a metaphor. It all starts with the eyes. So he spies a naked woman. Look, this will be the least surprising thing I say tonight. Spying a naked woman, looking at a naked woman, naturally incites lust in any man's heart. It's also the same for women, I suppose, but the point is, that's the least surprising part of this, right? He looked at something he shouldn't have looked at. He knew he was experiencing lust. There ain't nobody on this earth that experiences lust and doesn't know they're experiencing it, right? They, just don't, they either enjoy it or they don't want to admit it. He knew what he was experiencing. He knew, therefore, that he should have averted his eyes. Look, you can't be held accountable for that first glance because it wasn't even, you didn't even know it was there. Oh, look at that, right? It's what you do next. You avert your eyes. You, you move away from the temptation. You stop the lust from carrying you away. David could have done several things differently here. That was the first, right? Whoa, okay. And then secondly, he could have sent messengers to Bathsheba as he did, only the orders he would have given them is, tell that woman to stop bathing out in plain sight. Right? Instead, what we know he must have done is he must have let his gaze linger, he took it in, and then once aroused, he felt compelled to act on his lust, and he ordered her to his side. And Scripture commands all of us to guard our eyes and to erect other kinds of barriers, whatever that might be, to, to prevent us from letting the sin of our life carry us away. I mean, Scripture fully acknowledges there comes a point when it's almost not even in our control anymore. And the warning is not get good at controlling your lust. The warning is don't let it get started. And, and that's what you see happening with David here. This is an example of someone who's a very good man, generally, the way Scripture paints him, of course. Very good man, man after God's own heart. A man with a lot of commendable qualities, spiritually and otherwise. How does a man like that do this? Well, you see how. One step at a time. Scripture commands us to be careful in these moments. You're going to get fork in the road moments. That's how I refer to these. Fork in the road moments. In, 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 at all kinds of times you don't expect where suddenly you realize, all right, I'm about to make some decisions that will be very hard to come back from. I need to probably stop now while I'm still ahead. The moment before you have the fourth drink or the third drink or the moment before you accept the party invitation that you know what happens at those parties or the moment before you, you, you know, take the promotion that you know is gonna completely change your family life and your ability to attend church or to do what you need to do where God has called you right now. Oh, but the money, oh, but the opportunity, oh, but the, you know. We know those fork in the road moments happen and, and I have found my experience has been that when God is putting something in front of us he wants us to pursue in spiritual terms, quite often he'll give us a breakthrough in the world at the same time, one we may have been seeking for a while. And we may have even given up on the possibility of it in our heart and then as God throws something in front of us, he'll bring that to bear on us 
the, the other thing will show up too and we suddenly find ourselves in a dilemma. He tests your heart sometimes that way to see, are you ready for what I want over what you wanted? It's interesting that Bathsheba makes a point here of engaging in a ritual cleaning after they have their encounter. What that means is she went into one of David's mikvah. Mikvah is a Jewish word for a ritual bath that you would descend into and bathe yourself. It's not because you're dirty physically, it's a ritual. It's symbolic of being clean. The law called for this act in certain circumstances. Not when you have sex, that's not the problem here. The, the issue here has to do with her being ritually unclean for some reason. We'll talk about what that reason is here in a minute because the text gives it to us. But I want to address the fact that she's scrupulous on this point, that she makes the effort to do this in the moment. She's concerned about keeping the law's requirements for ritual purity after just having adulterous sex, right? Classic example of how God's people live in rebellion. That is, we sin on Saturday and go to church on Sunday. It's this idea that we can somehow mix these two sides of our life and they work together. You know, you're not fooling anyone and you're not fooling God, right? I, do, I should say we because it's obviously not something that's unique to, to anyone. It's everyone. God wanted her to observe the purity laws, yes. He wanted her to, to go through the ritual cleansing, yes. But he also wanted her to observe marital purity as well, right? It's not an either or. And she has, in a sense, I think in her heart maybe, used one against the other. And by that I mean this. She commits adultery. Well, who can't feel guilty about that? But then she uses the ritual cleansing to offset the sin. I mean, it's like when we choose to sin for some reason in some context, but then we excuse it to ourselves by giving more to the church or saying additional prayers or making up our work in some other way. We, we, we feel balanced in our heart for having done the wrong thing, but oh, look at all the good things I'm doing too. You cannot ignore one of God's commands and offset it by doubling down on another one. The math is not there. That's not how God works. He doesn't play those games and he doesn't credit us when we try to either. Now, obviously, by faith, you're forgiven of all things. I'm not suggesting you're working your way back from some point of deficit with God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there is a consequence for sin and sometimes it's a disciplinary response by God. Not to say your salvation's in question. That's not the issue. You just don't want... You know, look, let's put it simply. You don't want God mad at you. Just like you didn't want your dad or your mom mad at you. You don't worry that it's gonna, you're going to lose your relationship with them because you're, they're mad. It's not a worry about whether you truly are still a son or daughter. It's just the fact that that makes for bad fellowship. It makes for a bad relationship. And the same is true with God. He wants us to obey without exception. And the fact that you're forgiven for all your sin because of Christ should not give you comfort to sin more. In this case, the mention of ritual washing here, as I mentioned earlier, it's a clue about the kind of consequences, in their case, that God was about to visit on them for this sin because her need to wash ritually is a sign to us that she was menstruating because that's one of the reasons you would under these circumstances. And if a woman is in a menstruation cycle, it can only mean one thing, that she is able to conceive right now. And in verse 5, we hear the woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. How many times has that scene been repeated across history, right? So Bathsheba informs David she's pregnant. She knows the baby belongs to him, obviously, because her husband is away at the front fighting the Ammonites. So these are the consequences the Lord has visited on both her and on David. Now the question at this point is, how do you think David was supposed to respond to this? I mean, we could have asked this earlier, right? We did when I talked about his time on the roof, right? He could have done better there, but he didn't. Now he's gone this far. What should he do at this point if he wanted to go the right direction? Well, in the law, in Leviticus 20.10, it says that anyone who would do what David and Bathsheba just did must die. The penalty under the law is death for both of them. So we know her pregnancy would become known, you know, soon enough. And when it did, people are gonna know she was sleeping with someone other than Uriah because he's too far away. And now David might have been able to conceal his role, although it's questionable since they know, his servants know that they were together. But who knows, they might have been kept secret. But she is gonna get death easily. So that's why she says to David, I am pregnant. Because you know, it's not as though she thinks he needs to know this because they're gonna get hitched. She's not expecting that. She knows that she's going to be killed because of this, and she's looking to David 
for some measure of protection about this problem. It's his problem. He created it. And the proper thing for David to do at this point, under those circumstances, would have been to confess his sin to Bathsheba's husband, ask his forgiveness, and then throw himself on the mercy of God and ask God to spare his life and to spare Bathsheba's life, which God could have done. It's God's law. He can choose to provide mercy when he wishes. And I think, given if that had happened, that we can logically assume God would have extended mercy to David. I mean, David has not had the heir to the throne yet. Solomon hasn't come along yet. So it doesn't make any sense to think God would have put David to to death. Now, would he have spared Bathsheba also? I don't know. We can't say. It doesn't matter because we never get the option to find out. David didn't do any of this. He just proves James true once more, following that path of sin to another level. David gets carried away even deeper here into a trap that he set himself. He hatches a plan. His plan is to conceal his sin by bringing Bathsheba's husband back from the front. So verse six, David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So here's what David's doing. He sends for Uriah from Joab, the commander. Send Uriah back to me. So as Uriah comes back, David plays off this request as nothing more than just a a battlefield update. What's going on at, at the front? And after he gets the update, David says, you know, why don't you take a little R&R? Go on home. Now, there's a little euphemism here. Any... It's not always true, but it's generally true that when you hear someone say, wash your feet, other than like when Jesus does it for the disciples, it's euphemism for have sex. So because feet is often used as a euphemism for the male sexual organ. And so it's implied here that he's saying, why don't you go home and enjoy your wife, right? And we know why he wants this, obviously, because if this had happened, then when the pregnancy comes to pass, no one's going to think it's David's, everyone's going to think it's Uriah's. But Uriah is a man of honor and a man of integrity, so much so that he declines to have the opportunity to spend a night with his wife. Instead, he says, we hear here, he sleeps with servants outside David's house, and we're not sure why he's doing this yet. David confronts him too. He doesn't understand it. Verse 10, now when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. So... Uh, you're not feeling much sorrow for David right now, right? Nobody's feeling very sorry for this guy. He's, he asked Uriah, why didn't you go to your wife? And Uriah says, well, I couldn't bring myself to enjoy these things that the others who are in battle with me or that the nation in general is, is experiencing. I shouldn't have better for myself. He wants to be in solidarity with his brothers in arms and with his commander and with the, with the, the nation of Israel. So he says, I don't want to enjoy that advantage. You know, nothing convicts a person who's living in sin more than another person who refuses to join them in sin for righteous reasons, right? Those moments are either opportunity for someone to repent or to harden a heart and get very angry. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to be pious about it. I mean, you don't think, you know, Uriah's not saying anything here. It's assuming he's, he's showing off or being pious. He's trying to just be himself. But when that's how you see someone else respond to a set of circumstances that you expected to result in sin, it doubles the conviction. And someone who's intent on doing the wrong thing either repents or gets very angry about that because they can feel the conviction. David chose the latter. He doubles down here on the path of sin. Verse 12, David tells Uriah, to stay in Jerusalem a little longer. Why? Because he's got another plan for how he's gonna get him to sleep with his wife. Verse 13. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. So David calls Uriah to a feast, gets the man drunk. He figures, okay, well, this'll do it. Of course, he's hoping that this just lowers the man's inhibition, 
And as a result, he will succumb to the natural desire and go back on his word, right? That would have been the effect because he just swore he wouldn't do this. This is classic sin behavior. This ought to be a law of the universe, actually. When we sin, we expect and encourage others to join us because we need them to. We need to be joined in our sin. It is an instinctive response to sin. You see it at work every day. It started in the garden. I mean, what did the woman do immediately after she ate the fruit? Verse six of Genesis three. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, see, 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 all the eyes there, she took from its fruit, that's lust conceived into a sin, and ate, and that's death, And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The first instinctive response she said, or had, was, that was nice, you need to do it too. Right? It's universal. And you'll see it in kids. You'll see it, you you know, if you've got two or three kids in your house, it's it's rare you find just one of them doing the wrong thing. They usually have pulled their brother or sister in with them. There's a natural desire to see your own sin affirmed, and there's kind of a comfort in numbers effect on guilt too. And you know, if you're alone in your sin, you feel the exposure of it. If no one else is doing it and you're the only one, it tends to pull you out of it. And so you need help to keep going. But Uriah's integrity can't be taken from him that easily. So we're told in verse 13, he still refuses, even drunk, to see his wife. So a drunk Uriah has more integrity than a sober David, as Wearsby once observed. You get the sense at this point. Now listen, the thing about the story is it's evolving and all the turns and the difficulty David's having with what he's trying to get done here, right? You get a sense with all of the story that the Lord is at work in the background preventing David from getting what he wants because the Lord's working to expose him. Another classic pattern, this, this story is so good for so many reasons, but one of them is how well it demonstrates the patterns of sin in, in the lives of people, because David just exhibits all of them in a quick succession here. In the way sin works, God will often work against our efforts to hide it, so that as we're working to sweep our sin under the rug, God, and he may let us do that for a time, I mean, he'll let us have a measure of success in that perhaps, but he is always capable of exposing your sin. And he'll do it when it suits him. And sometimes he'll do it soon. Sometimes he waits for a while to suit a purpose. But you should never get comfortable with the idea that your little schemes to hide your secret sins is gonna work forever. Because even if it doesn't come out in this life, all things are known in the next. And in the meantime, the Lord may at some point, as he does here with David, decide that we've let this go on long enough, haven't we? And if you test him in that long enough, eventually he'll let the mistake come to life as a way to encourage repentance and move you out of it. How many of us probably have a story like that, right? At some point, God turned the, the table in such a way that we had no choice but to confess what we were doing and hiding, and then it got better, perhaps. And when you have the king of Israel and a man who is in the line of the Messiah engaging in adultery and fathering illegitimate children, the stakes could not be higher for God. So he is not going to turn a blind eye to this situation. And so every time David takes a turn here to sweep this under the rug, I mean, what if it happened if Uriah had gone to his wife? Then there'd be this question over who David's true heir was. And and there'd be all kinds of confusion coming out of that with the line of Messiah. So God is not going to let David's plans for sweeping this under the rug work. And he keeps thwarting it. You would wonder at some point, when is David gonna wake up? The guy who, who knows God's heart, the guy who's writing Psalms, the guy who prays to God to go left or to go right. You'd think at some point he would be looking at this saying, this is kind of too coincidental. God's doing something here. I should be paying attention. I should be thinking about this. But he doesn't, not right now. He, it takes another sin and another consequence before David gets the point. And that starts next in verse 14. We'll finish with this. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah and he had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watching on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king 
And if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jebusheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Well, then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. All right, so we're going to end on that passage. I'm going to come back to it next time, uh, primarily because of time, but also as a bit of a cliffhanger. You see David now moving, not that you don't know what's going on, I realize, but now that we're moving into the next phase of this, you see something that you never could have imagined from David or anyone else. Can you imagine if you had taken David aside early in this process before it all started and said, David, do you think you'd ever order the murder of a man because you slept with his wife and made her pregnant? He'd look at you like you were crazy. That's how it always works, right? You, you never imagine you'll end up where you end up. But it didn't start there. It starts with something small. We'll come back next week and we'll look at what it means that David took this step and go further into the story with Bathsheba. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace and for your patience with us as we sin. How many of us, Father, in this room right now are aware of secret and unconfessed sin, things we may still be doing, things we knew better than to do the first time, and yet they still remain a part of our life. And we wonder, Father, will you expose them? Will you shame us by them? Will you cause the consequences of them to come upon us at some point? We ask, Father, for your mercy and forgiveness in these things. We ask, Father, for the courage and the the strength of character to step away from them and make them a part of our past. And let us, Father, live in the light of the counsel of your word. And Father, we confess them to you in our hearts. We ask, Father, that you would support a new life, a stronger path without them. And I ask also, Father, that we would have mercy and forgiveness for any of those who might confess to us what they have done against us. And that we would forgive them as you forgive them. And I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.